0: This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, so you can go ahead and turn over there if you have a Bible. Uh, if you didn't bring one with you, we've got Bibles for you. So there are, there are Bibles uh, at the middle of each aisle, uh, on the floor up under the chair in the middle of each aisle. Just flag somebody down, they'll pass one to you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, biting off the entire chapter because it hangs together. It's a chapter all about the church and the, our connection to each other in a local church using the metaphor of the body. So maybe it's familiar to you. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll be able to look at it in a new way together today. It's a passage that starts out on spiritual gifts. It begins a whole section of the letter that's all about gifts. I wonder what associations you have with the, with the notion of giftedness. When you, when, you, when you hear that someone is gifted or you use that language or, or hear someone else described that way, I wonder what that evokes for you. I, I think, certainly in like sort of wider culture, to be gifted is to have something that sets you apart. It's really a statement about you, about you and your resources and your abilities. To be, to be gifted is to be highly skilled, maybe. Uh, it's to be above average. We have gifted programs in schools, honors classes. We have advanced placements. Gifted means you have an ability that no one else has or that most people do not have. In a spiritual context... Maybe you thought of giftedness more in terms of charismatic Christianity. You know those that branch of the Christian tradition that's all about visible manifestations of power that the Spirit gives, things like tongue speaking or prophecy. You know the sort of stuff we do here all the time here at Trinity. You know, that's the way we roll. I don't, maybe maybe your maybe your notion of spiritual giftedness is more about I don't know. Did you, I wonder how many of you have taken one of those spiritual gifts tests. You know what I'm talking about? Do you guys have these in your experience, in your past? It's basically like a baptized version of StrengthsFinder, you know, (laughs) of of aptitude, using categories that come up in the New Testament. I I don't know what the association is for you. Um, I imagine, though, that what happens in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, is going to maybe reframe what you think, how you think of giftedness, maybe how you think of your own giftedness, and certainly this is my prayer anyway, how you think about giftedness in the church, how gifts, the spirit gives to us are meant to help us serve each other. And here's the bottom line that comes through in this whole discussion. Your gifts, whatever they are, are not from you. They're not about you. They're not ultimately for you. What you have has been given to you as a gift, ultimately, to the church that you belong to. Here's another way to put it. You are a gift to the church. And God doesn't make mistakes in the gifts that he gives. What we want to, we want to taste together this morning and then in the next couple weeks while we are in this longer section is something of the beauty of God's providence in giving each church exactly what they need to be healthy, to flourish, and to thrive. And what we want to be looking at, what kind of questions we're going to be asking each other while we look at this, at this section is, how can I figure out why God has given me to this church? Because he doesn't make a mistake if you're part of our church, you're here because God knew we needed you. And so The question is, what do I have that I can give to this church God has put me in by his providence? Those are the sort of angles we're going to be taking on this passage. You know, I want to read it together first, uh, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to say some more things about how we're going to set it up and then break it down. Uh, first, I want to read it, though. We're going to read the whole thing. It's 31 verses. It's long, but we're going to read it all together uh, because God's word is powerful. Even the reading of it is powerful. Now I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 31. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body that wouldn't make it any less part of the body and if the ear should say because i'm not an eye i don't belong to the body that wouldn't make it any less part of the body if the whole body were an eye where would the sense of, of where would be the sense of hearing if the whole body were an ear where would be the sense of smell but as it is god arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose if all were a single member where would the body be as it is there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the, on those parts of the body, we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts and i will show you still a more excellent way this is the word of the lord you can be seated maybe you notice this as we were reading the first several verses the first 3 lay down a principle really really a, they lay down a principle that then gets built on in verses 4 to 11 and then and then gets illustrated for us in verses twelve to the end of the chapter, through this analogy of the body, we're really going to drill down on the analogy because I think that's where this this idea comes to life. But before we get there, I think I need to help set it up. Make sure you notice the right things about that first paragraph. The, the first three verses are notoriously hard to understand, um, and I don't I don't think we have time this morning to really get into why they are or what they might mean. Except that the except that the bottom line, and, and this is where pretty much everybody agrees. The bottom line purpose of those first three verses is to identify the subject. We're talking about spiritual gifts here. And to identify Paul's main point for the rest of the, the, the next three chapters. And that is that everybody has gifts. The point of that verse three where he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, is that everyone who owns Christ is gifted by the Spirit. There's no way you could even believe in Him as opposed to your idol's or whatever other religious tradition you came up in. There's no way you could believe that Jesus is Lord, who he claims to be, unless the Spirit has already gifted you. So the point is to level the playing field. Because what we've seen in, in, in this church through our, our earlier parts of this study has been that they're all about status. right? They're all about a pecking order that they're trying to climb. And they've used all the resources of the church to that end. And it shouldn't surprise us that now as he gets to this new part of his letter where he's going to talk about this new issue they've, they've written to him about, that they were using spiritual gifts, the things the Spirit gives to, to Christians as a way of establishing themselves and maybe comparing themselves to other people, to, to explaining why they're more important than others. Most people agree that tongue speaking is the main issue here. and Paul mentions lots of other gifts, um, and he's going to mention others in chapter 14 especially. But that really what's driving it, especially because of the way it gets treated in a couple chapters, is the issue of tongues, of, of who has them, what they mean, what role they play in the church. We're going to talk about that issue in a couple weeks. But we're going to save it for chapter 14, where he really does go there. What he's doing in chapter 12 is, is a higher level, and we want to stay there with him. What he's trying to say, really, is merely that everybody has gifts from the Spirit, that there's lots of different gifts from the Spirit, but that they all come from one Spirit and they all come for one purpose and that is to serve the body, to make it healthy, to help it to thrive. You can see this over and over again in the first few verses. You can see it in in verse 4. Varieties of gifts, same Spirit. Verse 5, varieties of service, same Lord. Verse 6, varieties of activities, same God who empowers them all. Verse 7 is sort of a a main point for this section. To each one, to every single person, is given a manifestation of the Spirit, some sort of evidence of the Spirit's power, and he's given it for the common good. Then he launches into a list of examples. Here's where those strength finder spiritual gift tests go off, I think, because they treat these as if they're like rigid categories that you either have them or you don't. But that's not what Paul's trying to do. He's just illustrating. He's just saying, look at all these things the Spirit has given us. Some people have great knowledge Some people have good wisdom over here. Sometimes there's prophecy happening. Here are these different ways the Spirit shows up, but it's all the same Spirit, and it's all for the common good. That's all he's trying to say here and then at the end of the chapter when he goes into the list again. There's not a rigid set of, of gifts that everybody either has or doesn't have. The Spirit doesn't work like that. The Spirit gives the church what it needs when it needs it. So it really in Paul's mind I think you could have a gift at a certain time and maybe not have it later on. Uh, you can you can have it when it's needed because no one else has it at that point and this is what the spirit has called you to and maybe another time you don't have the knowledge that you need. Or you don't have the prophetic power. You can't just speak in that tongue on command. The spirit acts as he wishes. God gives gifts as he chooses for the good of the body. That's the ba- the basic takeaway of the of the whole passage. That's what he sets up in the first paragraph. What I want to do so that we can get a better taste of it, sort of understand the different layers to it, is really focus on the body analogy that he uses. The analogy is where this, in, this principle comes to life. It picks up in verse, uh, verse 12, especially in verse 14, and goes through verse 27. And, and he's, he's using the body analogy to make the same couple of basic points that I've already mentioned. That there are lots of different kinds of gifts. Don't lock in on just one and think that's the person who has the Spirit. The Spirit gives lots of different gifts because the body needs them to thrive. But it's the same Spirit and ultimately the same purpose. These gifts are to be put to use for the common good. Not, they're not about you. It's about diversity and unity. About diversity and a dependence on each other. Or here's the way I'm going to frame it for us. Here's his point in a nutshell. We are all gifted. That's where we're going to start. That's the first half of the body analogy. But we're not self-sufficient because we need each other and other people need us. That's the simple point. God help us as we get into the details of it. I'm going to start with this giftedness. This is verse 12 to 19. One of the most clear points here is that the church includes a wide variety of gifts uh, that, that every single person has been gifted. We said verse 7 says this, each one has manifestation of the Spirit or that some evidence that the Spirit's working in them for the common good and, and that God is the one who's given all of these gifts as He sees fit. Verse 11 says, same Spirit empowers these gifts and the Spirit is giving them to each person as He wills. It's not an accident. He knows what He's doing. The body analogy helps here because it's obvious that a healthy body, a thriving body that's fully functioning, not missing anything, is one that needs a lot of different members. That body's gonna, the body needs its hands, its ears, its eyes, its nose, its legs, and feet. One member might wish to be another, might think that another one has a more significant role to play, but they'd be wrong. If they were right, if, if some were more important, and if some were to be like, aspired to if you didn't have them, you could end up with bodies that are monstrosities. That's the point of that, that first half of the analogy. With bodies that are walking, with, with noses that walk around. I, I, I keep thinking of that. I think it's Claritin. Is that the commercial where the nose just sort of walks around everywhere? Where the, that one faculty, because something's missing there, is just sort of taking over the whole body? And that, that's kind of the, the, the notion Paul's pointing to here. That What if the whole body were an ear or an eye? God go, go knows in his wisdom what each healthy body needs. He arranges it on purpose, gives it what's necessary. And the implication here of these verses is that he's done the same thing for the church. That the church, a church that has just one faculty, that has just one set of skills or interests, a church that's just got like one type of person, that everybody's sort of congregated around others who are like them, is a church that isn't, that isn't able to function in a healthy way. They aren't going to have everything that they need. There's something There's something essential about our diversity. What he's saying is that each member of every church is unique, has indispensable gifts that the church has to have if it's going to be healthy. What he's saying to us is that there is no one here, sitting in this room this morning, not one of you, who isn't gifted on purpose by God for our good. There's not one of you who isn't distinct in what you have to offer there isn't one of you who isn't valuable in the way that God has made you. There isn't one of you who lacks a reason from God for placing you here in our church. You are gifted and you, you are a gift to the church because you are something no one else could be. I wonder if you believe that. You're a gift to us, to our church, because you are something that nobody else could be. God doesn't make mistakes. He put you here for our good. I think, I think part of the example that he's using here, part of, uh, part of, part of the example of, of, of the foot saying, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong to the body, or an ear saying, well, I'm not an eye. So that means I'm not that important. He seems to be aiming at people who maybe don't think that they have anything to offer. Who look at the body and maybe see others who have gifts that are more prominent, that are more obvious, or seem more valuable because they, they're more visible. Pointing to people like that and saying, I don't have those gifts, so I don't have anything to offer. Don't fall into this trap. Please do not compare your assets to others or your public profile to theirs. If, 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 if everybody had the same gifts, if everybody did the same thing in our church, we wouldn't be the body that God has made us to be. If everybody was... If everybody was really into teaching, I was part of a church like this in college. Basically everybody had the gifts of teaching. And so we were really weighted to that, to, to, to that sort of ethos, that sort of culture. I um, was reading a book earlier this week with some friends who talked about Christianity that sort of gives itself over only to the mind as like tadpole Christianity where you've got this huge head and no body. And I think we were, we were probably guilty of that, training for that. I know I was guilty of that, because I thought, well, I have, I have the ability to teach. I'm, I like to teach. I'm good at it. I can study and understand the Bible and communicate it to people. So I'm just going to wait until I get to use that gift, right? The church is way, it was so weighted to people who had that gift that there was 50, 60 of us who wanted to be teaching. We couldn't be teaching. But what I never really connected with in college, that that sense God has convicted me of is that just because I liked to teach or wanted to teach didn't mean that that was how God had gifted me for that church at that time. Because the church had plenty of teachers. They had a lot of really good, seasoned teachers that were way better than anything I could do. But it also had a lot of other needs. They needed help in childcare. The building was old, it was filthy, it needed to be cleaned. It had a yard that needed to be mowed. The church didn't have a lot of money. it couldn't afford a staff to do those sorts of things. And I never really got involved in that in college. Because I wanted to be gifted in this other way. To be seen as gifted in this way. To be utilized in that way. What I hadn't connected with was the point of chapter 12 here. That God has given you the opportunity to do something that your church can't do without. Whether it's exactly how you want to be viewed or not. Whether it's exactly what you, the way that you think about yourself or not. The question isn't, am I getting to use this thing I want to use? But what does my church need of me that I can do for it? Because God has given you a gift. There's something about you that we need or you wouldn't be here. Imagine if our church was all men or all women. Imagine if we were all 20-somethings or all geriatrics. Imagine if we were all doctors or all artists. Where would our body be then? Your uniqueness. Please don't miss this, friends. This is for you this morning. Your uniqueness, wherever it is, is a gift of God to be leveraged for all it's worth. To be valued and prized and put to work in this church, in our church, for God's glory. To believe that you aren't gifted. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that you need to know. To believe that you aren't gifted or don't have anything to offer to us is to to question the providence of God who put you here. For a reason. That's what comes up over and over again in this section. God knows what the body needs and He apportions to that body what it needs as He so chooses. It comes up in verse 11. It comes up again at the end of this first example in verse 18. God arranged the members of the body. It's an analogy, but He's talking about the church and He does it as He chooses because He knows what's best. You are part of the providence of God for our congregation. So the question is, what do you have that can be put to use for our body? What we've got to do, this is hard for us in America because we're consumers by nature and we have so many choices in churches that what's very natural for us is to want to go to a church with people who are very like us with a place that that our sort of gifts are going to be appreciated and understood and valued. But I think this picture of the body and its giftedness is is a challenge to that that comes natural to us because what it says is that It isn't about going to a place where everybody's going to understand and appreciate what you already like about yourself. The the, the point is that wherever you are, you are put there for a purpose. Your body needs you. Your job is to figure out what you can do for your body. That if we were all congregating around people who are just like us, who really got us and really appreciated us, that we would be a body that looks a whole lot like a giant nose or a giant ear. It's grotesque. And it's inefficient. And it's not how we were made to be. So we are all gifted. That's the point. On purpose, by God. That includes you. What is it that the Spirit has given you that you can use for us? And here's the second part. We've already sort of led into this, what we've said together here, but we're not self-sufficient. That's the second part of this analogy. Um, The giftedness of everybody in the church is, is crucial for seeing how we understand the body and our place in it. But in Corinth, those to whom Paul is writing, it doesn't seem like they needed convincing that they were gifted. Right? This, this first part of the body analogy about the, the that's it's, it's calling into question the, the hand that wishes it was a foot is, strikes me as not exactly tailored for the people he was writing to. He needs it to set up his argument, but that wasn't their issue. Their issue was they valued their gifts too highly and they worked through every opportunity they had to establish their own superiority over other people. And my sense is this side of the issue isn't our biggest need in our time and place either. This, this convincing you that you're unique and that you have gifts. That's a big part of this body analogy. But my sense is what we need is this other sort of balancing side to it. Young adults in particular in our culture have grown up in a culture that tells them how special they are, Right? How gifted, how, uh, how unique and important. It's a message that gets reinforced in our education system. It gets reinforced throughout all of our, our popular culture, through our music and our shows and our movies. So there, is, uh, there is some amazing sociology survey results that show just how much this message has been bought, hook, line, and sinker. I came across this uh, again this week. There's a, a great book by a guy who writes for the New York Times named Ross Douthat, and one of the chapters in this book, just sort of surveying religion in America, what it's like in the 21st century, is about, uh, it draws a lot on some research about what's come to be called the me generation. Now, I don't know exactly what years, um, but I guess folks who were teenagers in the 2000s is is, is roughly it, so late 90s through now. Here's, Here's some interesting stuff that comes out of this survey. There's this book called The Me Generation by a sociologist named Gene Twinge. Get this, in the 1950s, only 12% of teens identified with the statement, I'm an important person. 12% in the 50s. In the 2000s, the number was 80%. Do you get that? In the 1950s, 12% of teens said, yeah, I'm an important person. In the 2000s, 80% of teens said, yeah, I'm an important person. In the me generation, where we struggle is not in seeing ourselves as unique and important and gifted. Where we struggle is on the other side, in seeing ourselves as dependent on each other, as connected to each other, as even responsible for each other. Where we struggle is in empathy, in identification with each other. Another set of survey results that Dalfit cites is a study of empathy among this same generation. Today's college students, this was done maybe five or ten years ago. So college students of that day. I'm sure those of you who are in college today, this no longer applies anymore. It was like ten years ago. You guys won't fit this bill, but here's what it says. Today's college students scored 40% lower than students in the 1970s. This was 40 years ago. On tests of the ability to understand what it's like to be someone else. Here's some examples. Teens today, or college students in particular today, were more likely than their parents' generation to agree with statements like, other people's misfortunes do not usually disturb me a great deal. And less likely to agree with prompts like, I sometimes try to understand my friends better by imagining how things look from their perspective. Or, I often have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. Our generation is more protective of rights, less concerns with the needs of others, than maybe any generation, at least in our culture. Now, those impulses have always been there. Those are human problems, right? But there are things in our culture right now that are sort of bringing to the surface and championing them. And that's why we need Paul's picture of the body. Because what he does in the verses to come, in verses beginning with with uh, verse 21 through the end of the chapter is balance out this picture he's drawn of unique significance of the importance of all of our gifts with a sense that we can't do without each other. You might be unique, important, and special, but you can't stand on your own. And other pe- you were made to be for other people. What Paul's calling us to, what he's balancing here is our individual significance, our individual giftedness with our corporate or body identity. The fact that we belong to each other, for each other. That's what the body analogy works so well to show. Its it's diversity is woven together in a unity that you can't split up. There's a variety of gifts, but there's one spirit given those gifts for one common good, and it's all about the health and the flourishing of the body. We, in all of our giftedness, in all of our individual uniqueness, we belong to each other. That's Paul's point. He shows it in a couple of ways. He starts out in verse 21, showing that you're not self-sufficient because you need other people. So he says, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Then he launches into this sort of strange analogy between the weaker parts of the body being the most indispensable. The fact that we can't see them or cover them up, most people think he's talking about either or both of either or both of uh, internal organs, which are essential but encased, so you can't see them, but you can't do without them or or uh the the uh sort of private parts in all of in all of human history define them differently, but everybody's got some that they don't want to be shown, right? And, and that's kind of what he's pointing back to, that these things are essential. We can't reproduce without them, but we cover them up. We give them a greater honor by covering them up. Maybe that analogy is not working exactly for you, but it would have worked in Corinth. They got it. The point is, we, the ones that we need the most often look weaker, but look at this honor that we give to them. Look how much we need them. And his point is clear enough, even if that analogy maybe doesn't land on us in the same way it would have landed on them. His point is that whether you think these gifts are important, the gifts of other people, not like you, You need them. You can't do without them, and God meant for it to be that way because what he wants is no division in the body. What he wants is a body that knows it needs everyone else and that savors that. So building to his summary, so that there may be the same care for one another, that when one rejoices, they all rejoice. When one suffers, they all suffer. It won't stand, Paul won't stand for us to look within ourselves for all the strength that we need. He won't let us settle for being the one who only serves all the time, never needs to be served. He won't let us be that guy. We all need each other and we're helpless and lame without each other. Yeah. And from an a- another angle, on the same idea, not only do we need the help of other people, but other people need us. And we're obligated to use whatever it is that we've got for the good of everyone who's in our body. That's where he's really drilling down at the end of this analogy. So he starts with, the uh, you can't say you don't need these other parts of the body. He concludes with, uh, you've got to give yourself to the members of your body so that you all have the same care, so that what happens to one happens to the other. Whatever gifts or strengths or resources I have available have been given to me not for my own good, but for the good of those who are in the body. Whatever I have belongs to them. I mean, and I think here, in this sense, what he's saying is that in the church, we become what we were meant to be. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That humans were made for love in the same way that fish were made for water. Love between ourselves and for God is the reason we were put here. And that in the church, this is where we get to reclaim that identity and start to live it out in a more healthy way because the Spirit gives us the power to do it. And what it looks like for us to live in the way we were made to live is a belonging to each other. Now, This pushes back again against something that comes very natural to us. I mean, in, in, in our context, what we're used to, if we, if we do see our need for each other, if we do get past a sort of, I can, I'm, I'm a sort of man on an island, I can survive on my own, and we do go after each other for what others can provide to us, I think what comes natural to us there is to see ourselves as the, as the head, as the sort of protagonist in our own story, and everyone else who interacts with us interacts with us insofar as they help us or hurt us in our, in our own personal story, right? We're the head, and what we're accumulating is the parts that we want. And it's how we relate to church a lot of times. We evaluate our experience in the church in light of how well others are complementing us in in our desire to be a certain kind of person. But here what we're called to, we're supposed to see ourselves in the ear, in the hand, who isn't a foot but doesn't need to be, who's willing to give its handness over to the body, to belong to that body, to be used and put to use however that body needs it. It's about identifying together. Not seeing each other for how they reflect on us, like a head who wants a certain kind of body to match, but like a hand who's happy as long as the body is thriving, who's willing to do anything necessary to be part of that. This is the kind of body that God calls us to, an identification with each other. That's what it means to all suffer together or all rejoice together because what happens to one is also happening to me because I'm with you, I'm attached to you. You know, it shouldn't surprise us, I don't think, that this kind of connection to each other or the lack of this kind of connection shows up in our happiness or our lack of happiness. I mean what I've said earlier, we talked about this more a couple weeks ago, I'll redevelop it here, but we were made for this kind of connection to each other. What defines our calling in life as humans is to love God with everything that we have and to love each other as ourselves. In other words, identify that person with yourself. It's as if that person is you. What happens to them happens to you. That's our calling in life. It's what we were made for. So when we have these kind of connections with each other, when we're less isolated, more attached to each other, we are, more cl- we are closer to what we were made to be. And there's happiness in that. And it shows up even in secular research on happiness. One of my favorite sociologists, he writes some for the New York Times, a guy named David Brooks. And some of the, some of the research that he's talked about in, in columns earlier this year is on happiness. And this is like secular-funded research at major universities about what sort of lifestyle leads to human happiness. And one, one of the things that he brings out is that we've got this, what he calls a debate in America, in our sort of popular culture, our popular understanding of ourselves, between on the road, this is the famous novel by Jack Kerouac, a, a, a novelist who wrote in the 60s about, um, about in, in the era in which people were sort of casting off the chains and becoming their own persons and celebrating their individual identity, He writes a novel about the good life, a life lived on the road, sort of not attached to anything, leaving everything behind, pick up and go wherever you want, whenever you want, unattached to anyone or anything, that happiness comes from the ability to wander, to be free and autonomous. It's a contrast between on the road, Brooks says, and it's a wonderful life, where George Bailey starts out wanting to be Jack Kerouac. He wants to go on the road, right? He wants to travel the world. It's the first scene. He gets that nice suitcase, you know, with all the... He's going to put all of his stickers all over it from all all the countries that he's been. But what happens to him? He gets stuck in Bedford Falls. He never gets out. But the the moral of the movie, as you get to the end of it, is that there's happiness here that he couldn't have gotten as an autonomous man sort of floating around the world. There's happiness from embracing and giving himself to a community that he didn't choose, made up of people that he didn't choose. These connections come to him before he was even born, and he inherits them. But accepting that, embracing it, and belonging to this community is where true happiness is found. Brooks says this is the sort of core debate in American society. And our text is pointing us towards why happiness research now, funded by major secular universities, is saying that the George Bailey model works a lot better if you want to be happy than the Jack Kerouac model. Now here's the thing. It sounds great until you realize how hard it is. Right to belong to people on this level, people that you don't choose, people who you inherit. It's a lot more like a family, Paul's vision of a church, than like you know, I don't know, fill in the blank, as a a sort of chamber of commerce or an alumni association where you choose to affiliate with people who share this interest with you. And when you don't choose who you're with, you know things can get hard. The knock on the small towns of the 1950s pictured in It's a Wonderful Life or the, or the novels of someone like Wendell Berry is the idealism in these pictures. You know, these, these communities work the way they do because there's no race problem there, right? That gets left out. They don't have a lot of socioeconomic divisions in these stories, right? That gets left out. I love the Andy Griffith Show. grew up on it. It's another one of these 1950s, 1960s pictures of what happiness looks like. It's a small town that you don't choose that you just give yourself to. But they don't have race problems there and they don't have class problems there. They don't have the sort of things that ultimately work against this kind of community. What, how is this picture of what happiness looks like possible among people who are self-centered? How can this kind of community work where there are socioeconomic differences, where there are artists and academics and businessmen or whatever else all mixed in together. There's nothing easy about belonging to each other. And one of my favorite books of the last 10 years is called uh, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. It's by a theologian named Jonathan Lehman. And he takes up this question. He's talking about First Corinthians 12 and this body imagery that Paul is using and about how hard it is to identify with each other in this kind of way, where we belong to each other, where we're at the disposal of each other. He suggests that one of the things that makes it hard for us to identify with each other in this way is that the empathy training we have, such as it is, comes from the movie theater. We're more likely to to empathize or connect with other people on screen than we are in real life. And when you connect with people on screen, you can have a deep emotional connection you can be moved by their plight. You can root for them or root against them. These things can be strong and, and in an emotional sense very real. But you leave the theater unchanged, right? The lights go up, the story ends, and you go home to do whatever it is you were going to do anyway. Conditioned, conditioned by the theater and what it's like, I think sometimes we look for the same experiences in our churches What we want is the same kind of emotional experience, the same kind of connection in the moment, but without any kind of greater ongoing change, without being obligated after the lights go up and the music fades, without any sort of self-life-shaping obligation to each other, we want to file out unaffected and get on with the rest of our day. Here's what Lehman writes. I'm I'm closing here. I'm going to quote to you from this book. I think he nails it on what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 12. Compare that, what I've just talked about, the emotions of the theater, maybe what we bring to church, the kind of connection that ends when the service is over. Compare that kind of affection or connection to each other with the affection that Paul commands. He commands us to rejoice with the brother who gets a big job promotion and all the money and the prestige that come with it. Can we? He commands the 30-year-old single woman who longs for marriage to rejoice with the 22-year-old woman when she marries. Can she? Can the poor man mourn with the rich man when he loses his job? Can the older woman mourn with the younger woman whose melancholy strikes her as petty and maudlin? I mean, who among us, really? Who among us is capable of this sort of union with each other? At this level of empathy, this sort of joyful and willing identity with each other. How can we, how can we in our world of sin and sorrow give ourselves to each other like this and live as one body? Lehman points the way, continues, saying yes to these questions rather than yes to selfish ambition and vain conceit requires something more than mere sentiment. It requires a gospel-altered heart and the power of the Spirit. The single woman rejoices for the married woman, and the poor man mourns with the rich man when both find all their identity and joy in Christ. They feel affirmed in His love, which they see in His sacrifice. They know that no marriage and no riches will satisfy more than Christ. They desire nothing more than His praise, so they find themselves unexpectedly warm of heart toward all those who belong to his body. Now, Paul doesn't develop this here. We talked about this, Shaka was teaching us in Sunday school a couple weeks back on this passage. Paul doesn't develop this here, but he mentions the body of Christ twice, once at the beginning of his analogy, once again at the end. I think what he's pointing us to is something he develops more elsewhere. That the only way for this body right here to be possible where we rejoice together, where we mourn together, where we belong to each other, is if the head of this body is not any one of us, but Jesus. What joins us together is our shared commitment to him. What keeps us together is the power that he supplies, the direction that he gives to our body as we live in the world. The only thing that makes this kind of body possible is Christ and what he's done for us. It's our experience of His love that fuels our love for each other. It's our hope in His promises that gives us the power to love each other well and frees us from comparing ourselves to others and drives us to giving ourselves to others. Do you want to know the kind of happiness that can only come when you live the life you were made to live, a life of identity with others for their good? If you want that happiness, friends, the only place you're going to get it is in Jesus Christ. You've got to come to Him first. You've got to drink from Him, from His cross, which is like a drink of cool water in deserts dreary. This is where we get the, po- the power to be the body He made us to be, only from Him. And so we pray. We pray to Him. Father, give us this power. You've given us Christ. We trust that He is enough to bind us together and to give us joy with each other. But we are helpless. We are helpless apart from His power. We want this beautiful community that Paul describes. We want a taste of it, to know it, to celebrate it together. And so we ask that You, by the power of Your Spirit, would change our hearts so that we love You, that we're satisfied in You, And from that love, love each other well. We trust that in this love for each other, we reflect your holiness. We live as those who are not normal. And this holiness is what we want. For your name's sake and not ours. So change us, Father, by your power. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.